If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 47. I feel like sermons I used to hear as a young, young kid were like, be careful you're not being deceived by the devil anytime you doubt anything and you can't trust the flesh and everything is just a motivation of your own body. And, and I think that creates like an unhealthy mistrust of your desires. Julian Baker is a Tennessee-based singer-songwriter with a knack for finding the shaky ground between heart-wrenching and cathartic. Her solo debut album, Sprained Ankle, was one of the most widely acclaimed works of 2015. She recorded it with one of her friends at 18, and it launched her to number 23 on the Billboard Heat Seekers albums chart, and it appeared on year-end lists everywhere from NPR Music to the AV Club to New York Magazine's Vulture. Uh, Julian has performed on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. She was one of Out Magazine's Out 100 in 2017, and she's been featured by The New York Times, Paste, The New Yorker, GQ Magazine, Vice, NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts, and many more. Uh, earlier this year, she finished an international tour with Bell and Sebastian. She's currently wrapping up headlining a North American tour, and she's jumping right back into things this fall to headline an international tour. Uh, in the midst of all of that, she's here on Chorology, and I am so excited. I've been a fan of Julian's work for a couple years, uh, ever since I read about her in Out Magazine. Uh, she was talking about what it was like being a queer Christian, and I was like, wait a second, who is this person? Uh, and then a couple months ago, she started following me on Twitter, and I reached out to her and was like, hey, I have this podcast. And she was like, hey, I listen to your podcast. And I was like, do you want to be on it? And here we are. And I, we dive into all kinds of topics in today's episode. We talk about faith and identity. Uh, we talk about ethics. We talk about church hopping. We talk about anxiety and depression. Um, let's just go ahead and dive in. Julian, hi. Welcome. Hi, it's so nice to speak with you this morning. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for joining me. So to start, uh, the question I ask everyone, uh, how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Oh, man. Okay. Just diving right on in there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find this question harder and harder to answer, like, without hesitating. Like, um, because I would identify, I usually just say, like, I identify as a queer female. Um, like, cis female, um, queer. Um, but I guess I also hear people when they're asked this question because like, you know, I listen to your podcast and I listen to like query and people will identify with like significant factors about their life. And I always feel prompted to say I'm, I'm, I'm a musician by trade. Um, and I am a Christian person, I suppose, I guess. And of course you can edit out any of my like long winded Yes, if you want to, but um, you'll. I feel like I get increasingly more hung up on linguistic like accuracy or like the accuracy of 
nomenclature. And so I don't know because um, I call myself a Christian. I've identified as Christian my entire life and I like believe in the teachings of the gospel. But also there's like all this baggage that now comes with identifying as like evangelical or Baptist or like or even non-denominational, which I'm learning from like just some interesting stuff I've been reading about, like the U.S. Census Bureau and how we now like millennials define themselves um, and their religious affiliation. But so I guess I just stick with like I'm I, I make music and I believe in God and I am queer. And I guess the other thing is that I would call myself a humanitarian if that didn't seem arrogant on my part, because I know like there's a perpetual shortcoming, of course, in anyone who's like, oh, I'm a, a philanthropist. Like, I love humanity. But that's not like a constant state for anyone because we're human. So uh, I strive to be humanitarian and think about that quite a bit. Um, but I don't know if I'm there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'm thinking about that in that like that kind of struggle with like what do I call myself, especially around kind of like faith identity, because you're right. Like that word like Christian is one that I know I I wrestle with a lot of like do what mm-hmm. this word means so many things and so many things that I don't identify with. Like, do I really want to claim that label for myself? And yet, there's something intriguing about it too, and. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. Right. Yeah, and I mean, like, um, it's interesting because I feel that our our individual identity, like, at this point in just, like, where we are in history, like, as far as our social development and our, and our cultural awareness, uh, the fragmentation of identity, and this is a beautiful thing that, like... Um, now, at least probably in the in-groups or some of the in-groups that you and I are are, are a part of, um, gender and sexuality is a spectrum. It is not like a, a, a binary, you know? And so we're moving away from black and white categorization um, and into infinite diversify, like possibility for diversification and, and individualization. But then that makes it... Um, that much more urgent that you have a deep self-knowledge of of where you reside. And a lot of times I'm not sure, you know, I think there's a grand uncertainty that makes me maybe a little bit unsettled, but it's something that I'm, I'm grappling with more now, but especially like with religion too. Like, um, I, I just got done reading this book called life's too short to pretend you're not religious by David dark. Yeah. And oh, have you? Are you aware of David I, Dark? I am. I haven't read his. I, I read his "The Sacredness of Questioning Everything" a few years ago, but I haven't read that oh, one yet. Yeah. So good. Yeah. He's such a cool dude. Yes. Like I've never met somebody who is like able to adeptly talk about the issues he does um, with such a reverence for like his position as just like a cishet white dude. Um, He's amazing and really just kind. Um, But also he talks about in Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious 
that they had to like modify the census um, religious affiliation like portion of the questionnaire because people wouldn't even put like non-denominational. They would just send it back blank. And so they added this thing called non-affiliated because like now I think in our current generation or our like our social actuality, like we're increasingly more reticent to concreteness and like uh, definitive labeling. Um, And so we don't want to be like even something like non-denominational now, even though it literally means no denomination when you say non-denominational, like to me, it summons to mind the like mega church, like rock church, non-denominational, like it's just chill church or like chill in quotations church. You know what I mean? Um, but it's definitely like a thing. And so I wonder then, and I have this conversation with, I know you know Sue Ann. Yeah. And she was on this podcast, too, for everyone yes. who's like, who's Sue in? Go listen to Dude, her episode. So <laughs> That episode is wild. Right? And it's like, <laughs> it's so crazy to listen to that episode because it sounds like just a conversation you're having with Sue Ann. Yeah. Like, I just met up with her in Detroit on tour, and we were together for five seconds, literally five minutes into our conversation, and one of us was like, well, there's no ethical consumption in our capitalism. And I was like, <laughs> I, kn- I knew we would get here. Suan, it took us five whole minutes. Um, but like, I I was texting her recently about just like I don't even know at what point like I start separating the institution I'm defending um, from like the church it's supposed to represent, like church and institution as separate things, you know, or maybe like. To me, it feels a lot like anything that has an ideal manifestation and then an, uh, like a, a truth, like um, the idea of the rugged individualism, like mythos of United Sta- the United States, and then the actuality of our history and the actuality of our bureaucracy. Like, I find that mirrored in most everything, in like the church and probably specifically the church and also just because in the United States I think religion and politics are like collapsed in a very insidious way um but yeah that's my I feel myself looking over the cliff of a tangent so I'm gonna pull back and let you guide us away well or maybe we might just jump off together because like I'm I'm thinking about this and I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking of so like yesterday I was um driving and listening to Brene Brown's audio lecture on like the power of vulnerability and and the section I was listening to was around like certainty versus uncertainty and I feel like that ties in so well here in that idea of like, we want the certainty of labels and yet there's a deep uncertainty that goes into those labels. And like, I mean, she talks about having to sit in, in uncertainty and how deeply uncomfortable that is. And I feel Mm -hmm. like that's kind of what we're talking about here is just like how incredibly uncomfortable it is to sit in that space of like, I kind of know, but I don't know. And like, this is too rigid and yet I want it to be rigid and yet I don't. And like, just kind of like the almost yuckiness of all of that. Mm, It's hard. And it's interesting because I think of that, like when you describe the 
perpetual feeling of uncertainty, the the pull between the two things, like the two diametrically opposed desires that we have. We have a desire for the security of certainty and uh, we want, oh my gosh, I was just talking about this to one of my friends who's in a, a communication theory class. Like we have two, the, there's a tension of human communication, which is our, um, our hunger for belonging and like inclusion and then our desire for autonomy and individuality and like when I think the ideal when those two things intersect is when your like myriad differences are purposed for a singular goal um which I guess would be the like a like true a truly rigid like gospel model of a communal living but then of course, like as always happens, like things get more complex and it's harder to achieve that when you have more permutations of differences and you have more highly specified desires. Um, so like then I think about enacting like how do how would we even go about enacting that in a church community? You know, because like right now and uh, I actually am like between or not like attending a church because I have been touring so much that I'm like never home on Sundays. Um, like for the last six months of 2017, I was like home. I was not home four days in a row for like six months, like in one city. So it's like, I probably have a lot more skewed a concept of what really putting roots down in a community means because my community has become like my touring crew and my close family and partner. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, I hear you saying like that kind of maybe, I don't, I don't like, I mean, you said skewed version of putting down roots, but I feel like there, I feel like there's so many people though that I talk to who maybe who aren't touring all the time, but who have such a hard time finding faith communities, I think maybe for <laughs> similar reasons, at least of, of like that kind of in between uncertain, like, I don't really know what I want slash even maybe even believe anymore mm-hmm. when it comes to this faith stuff. Like, right. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if that, that resonates or it could be different reasons, but. Well, yeah, yeah. I think even when, there's a lot of, I mean, and this is, uh, I guess I could just like stick a flag at this fork in our conversation and say, uh, here's a possible tangent. Because when I think of um, finding or like visiting several faith communities, say within the same city, um, I, I think of like what what that process really means or reflects in my life. Like, so what am I looking for? Am I looking for somewhere Obviously, as a queer person, I'm looking for an affirming church because that is where I feel comfortable worshiping. But then, like, beyond that, in the multiple affirming churches, like, what brand of preaching, worship, community, service, like, what what um, formula or concoction of all those things do I need um, to feel spiritually fed? And I remember when I was younger, or, like, when I was very young— Um, because later in my life, I had like a really almost like miraculously awesome church community. 
Um, but when I was very young, I remember the pastor saying like, kind of t- like touting church shopping, like it was a bad thing. Like, look, you should just pick somewhere and go because God's word is God's word and you are the thing that needs to change and not the church. And then there's all these like mixed in emotions of um, the like biblical concepts of self-sacrifice and like self-effacing patience that um, not just tolerates, but like seeks to engage in a person with a difference of opinion in love. And so I always wonder if, because there is also something I think toxic about going to a place like, or being in relationship with people that don't challenge you. Like, um, but then I wonder how much of that self doubt is imbued into our, like, I wish I didn't say like so much, how much of that self doubt is imbued into our spiritual consciousness that makes us mistrustful of our own minds so that we're fully reliant upon a punitive authority and then that punitive authority uses its power just like uses that authority to consolidate power and not to draw us into community with one another like does that make sense I feel like a sermons I used to hear as a young young kid were like be careful you're not being deceived by the devil anytime you doubt anything and you can't trust the flesh and everything is just a motivation of your own body and you should just do like you know what I mean you learn to think that every thought you have might be evil. So you better be real careful. And I think that creates like an unhealthy mistrust of your desires. Like if, okay, so if I don't feel comfortable in a congregation, that's my fault. That's the devil trying to make me feel uncomfortable at this church Um, or something, you know, instead of me having a legitimate need. Yeah. I, well, I, I, yeah, I think that that's so pervasive that, that mistrust and that, that idea of like, then having, like, I feel like this has been my own process and and maybe yours as well. Like then having to learn how to like actually trust my body and then start believing like that God has given us bodies for reasons and like feelings Mm. and emotions and like their actual tools that can bring us further into fullness of life instead of these things that bring us away from abundant life, like Mm -hmm. all of that work. It's so much work to try to like get over. (laughs) Dude, I know. (laughs) And I feel like, unfortunately, like so much of like a healthy spiritual journey has to be unlearning or discerning what to keep like spring cleaning of your ideology where you go where you go through all the closets of fundamental theology that you were taught in youth and think okay x is still fundamentally true for me um but y is is not and i understand that to be culturally motivated or politically motivated and what does you know my own understanding of my faith and personal revelation say about that um and it's like this huge excavation process uh to even be able to understand like what you believe and then so for instance like i don't necessarily want to go to a church 
or attend like a congregation where like everybody believes the exact same thing as me. Uh, obviously, like even if that were the, we were all on the same page politically and social, like social ideology wise, um, because I would fear that it would not be engaging like other members of what's supposed to be an interwoven faith community. And then it would just further be splintering off into like sects of personally invented religion where we end up worshiping like a set of ideology instead of doing the work, the like the hard work of engaging with each other. Um, but I don't know. I feel uh, hesitant in any time to say that because I don't want for it to come off as if I don't prioritize certain fundamental things. Like, right. I'm not out here trying to go to a homophobic church on purpose. Like, I'm not an insane person, but <laughs> you, like, <laughs> that would just be, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, and I think, I mean, I, I wonder, like, this This almost feels like, like, in this conversation, there's kind of that, I, I always have this message, and I'm curious about this for you too, but there, there's kind of that message that I was raised with of, like, if you stop going to church that like, that like do not forsake the assembly of believers or whatever scripture talks about of like that you taking time to kind of figure out what you want or church shop or whatever is a sign of like backsliding and not prioritizing faith. In. Right. And that is such <laughs> a pervasive belief. I think even in my body that like, I feel guilty on Sunday mornings Mm-hmm for not going to yeah. church. <laughs> or when you realize, like, I used to, for a long time, I will say, too, that there, the, and there's, like, another element of that where in within a, a church community, if a family or, or a person stops going to that church and starts going to another church that they feel is a better home for them, it's almost like a taboo. Like, well, now you're not seeking to serve a church or seeking for a church to serve you. And because self-denial is something that's tied up in a lot of traditionalist theology, um, that's like a really negative thing to ever just say, like, I can't jive with this church, so I have to move. Um, I don't want to work on the existing thing. I want to leave and start over. Uh, but also, yeah, like for a while in my life, I would try to read scripture daily I would just wake up and have quiet time and read scripture daily to offset that guilt like to hope that if I would just ruminate and study on my own then I wouldn't feel so bad about like not being at church on Sunday and being like a spiritual delinquent which of course because I have been in and out of church my whole life and so have my parents um, it, it has never been such a strong thing for me as some of my friends who, you know, their parents have never missed a Sunday. And if their parents knew that they didn't go to church, it would be devastating. Um, but my, my parents are like, you know, do whatever, like we trust you. And we have candid conversations about that. But, um, and then I started to feel that I, as much as I wanted to engage in the academia of my faith and just being knowledgeable about it so that I have this arsenal of discussion whenever um, 
the multitude of politicized theology conversations come up. As much as I enjoy that pursuit, like the manifestation of God that I find most tangible is what occurs within a community. Um, but more and more, like I, I find that not limited to church. <laughs> and this sounds like a bunch of like, I don't want to say this word because it also might be offensive, but it sounds like, you know, just like me being like a white girl yoga mystic, like the world is my church. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I do find that there's a need for like specific and intentional conversations and in faith communities, but I'm almost un- uh, unable to think of God in any other way th- uh, than interpersonal now. And so like that seems to be the most present spiritual task I don't know if that makes sense or if it sounds like nonsense or if it sounds like I'm being mean to people who practice yoga which I don't have a problem with I think it's very healthy my tour manager tries to get me to do yoga all the time I hear you though like I think I I mean I I wonder that too because I wonder about so I mean, what if church maybe like quote unquote church does look different for different people of where instead of it being this kind of like I, I go to a building on Sunday mornings, like, I mean, I, I, I often think about this podcast as church in a way of having like very intentional conversations around faith and there's a community involved and like, and I wonder sometimes like if that's enough, like as in, like, maybe it is enough. Maybe that's okay. Like, and I, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Dude, um, you said one of the most fascinating words uh, to me, which is enough. That's, like, the a word that I get super hung up on. Um, like, what's enough? Or what is... It, for me, I guess it used to be what's right. You know, like, what what is doing the right thing? And that took on a lot of different faces, whether it was um, trying to be biblically right and follow, like, the teachings of Jesus and, um, I guess, the legalistic incarnation of rightness. And then later, it was this, like, arrogant, uh, over-intellectual obsession with, like, philosophical, ethical right. Um, But then like what exactly like what is enough you're um I don't know what kind of church you grew up in I feel like I've heard you talk about it and it was like a pretty traditional church am I correct yeah pretty traditional pretty conservative borderline borderline fundamentalist but I think they they were a little bit too heavy on grace to be fundamentalist but right about there so too heavy on grace to be fundamentalist is exactly what I think of when I think of it's almost like a veiled neo-Calvinism of like where total depravity is really drilled in to you. Like the worm theology that kind of illustrates God's magnitude by this like parabolic um, like opposite, like the worse that we can imagine humanity is and, and the less we can uh, deserve God, and the more we remind ourselves that we're absolutely nothing, then the more impressive and unbelievable God's grace becomes because we're so bad. And that is supposed to be 
I guess like an instrument to teach humility, but what it really teaches is it, it, in, it instills uncertainty and, and self-doubt and often I think um, self-hatred that is just wearing the mask of humility. And I think those two things are different, but then it makes you uncertain that anything you'll ever do will be enough because, I mean, it's that, what I was going to say is the conundrum that you are taught from childhood if you grow up in a church that subscribes to that sort of um, belief is nothing you will ever do will be enough, but try your hardest anyway, but it's okay if you fail, but don't fail because then that's still bad. Like, and so from a very early age, you have to hold that uh, paradox in your mind. And I just think that there are more, it's not that it's not accurate, but it's the way that it, I think, can be weaponized to make people hate themselves. Yeah, like I'm thinking like it's a, it, two thoughts, like it's, it's, a, it's a theology that's deeply rooted in shame. Like it's that, that, that inherent, like, teaching people that there is something wrong with who you are as a person and there always will be something wrong with who you are as a person and jesus makes that better but you're still dirt um which is just shame and then the other thing that you were talking about kind of that like uh, that that false humility like it, it made me think of like so so like in the world of psychology there's like there's narcissism but there's two different sides to that of there's inflated narcissism which is often what we think about there's also deflated narcissism which is that kind of false sense of humility that that sense of i think exactly what you were talking about like it's still so me centered i'm dirt i'm nothing like it's still narcissism true True. I think so. Like, and it's interesting that you bring up that, um, the name for like deflated narcissism, because I, I remember another pastor using the terminology always, um, <clears throat> reverse idolatry of sin. Have you ever heard that? Like co word combo? It's just like know. a mental, uh, <laughs> it's like a overfull mental suitcase. We just got to unpack. So, like, reverse idolatry of sin is, like, so I guess his thinking was you have something that's an idol to you that you find precious, and um, you find that thing uh, or your actions would communicate to others that that thing's more important than God, mm. whatever. Um, so, like, financial security, more important than God, blah, blah, blah. But reverse idolatry of sin is this belief that when shame drives us away from uh, a relationship with God or makes us too uh, afraid to like encounter or encounter or interact with God that we are implicitly stating or like subconsciously believing that our sin or the thing that's wrong with us is somehow bigger than God and I think that that's a useful way to imagine it because it's kind of similar to what you're saying about the deflated narcissism, like it, it decentralizes the focus from me and my sin and I am so awful to like away from just yourself and your own failure. But I think it still exists within this interesting thing that happens 
in American Christianity that I find intriguing, I guess, but that it's very, uh, we want a personal God and, and like, and we think of personal as like belonging to us or, and I'm not saying that like, okay, sorry, I'm just going to back up here and start again, (laughs) because I don't want to get misconstrued. Mm. Um, but I think we like, we want this God that we have one idea for, and that is to provide us with salvation and comfort. So I see a lot of churches that are very, very, very vocal about awesome concepts like grace and mercy and the love of God. And those things are freaking awesome and make me excited. But I think that it is dangerous when it's purely individual. Like it's for that individual's need for comfort and security and like we need to construct a mental equation to get us to the the X of salvation and that is what we come to church for. And I think that stopped being why I needed church. Um, and so I started to feel uncomfortable with just like seeking a one-on-one relationship with God that did not involve overflowing love for humans or community or like service. And that's not to be like, the risk in saying something like that is it sounding like I am condemning another person's way of interacting with their faith. Or like, if you're not out there working at a soup kitchen every day, then somehow you're not doing what God calls you to do. And that's not what I'm saying at all, because I do think the personal relationship with God is important to anybody's faith. But it can't, I think that when God starts being something solely to alleviate like your fear, then, and it's not within the context of a larger collaborative community that's like, everybody working together to figure out these fears and these worries and these global needs, that's when you end up having like the Christian ostrich that I got so frustrated with during the election season. That's like, well, thank God God is sovereign. And I'm like, not going to vote, not going to engage the violence that's happening outside my door, not going to see part of my faith as directly related to those things. I'm just going to worry about me, Julian Baker and Julian Baker's spiritual needs. Like, I think that's kind of dangerous. Maybe. Yeah. I, I I think I would say more than maybe like, I, <laughs> I, I okay. So <laughs> I said maybe because I'm like terrified that someone's going to be like, look, I just got to I just like, I used to go to an extremely, uh, oppressive church and I need to be because there are people that like maybe they were told hellfire and brimstone every day right. at a church that they grew up in and they need to be told you're a beautiful beloved uh, child of the living God they need to be told that every day but I think it can't just like end there in like the like the purpose of God is is not to just like save you and then that's it like I got it like I think we think a lot about like, or even I did this. I used to think about like, 
will I go to heaven when I die or not? Because I'm just scared of hell or scared of not going to heaven. And I did not think about what the gospel implies for my physical, corporal life on earth at this moment. Like the whole like heaven on earth concept became a lot more fascinating to me. Cause like if we're going to pray for heaven on earth, then part of the church as like the body of Christ's purpose is to like enact that. So we're, how do we start enacting that by being arbiters of love and relief from suffering to our fellow human beings? But if I was just like worried about reading enough obscure theological philosophers to tell me whether I was going to go to heaven or hell, then I was like missing all these opportunities to encounter a, a living manifestation of God in like all the people that I meet, mm. you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. But you're, you're going to say something before I apologize for being so wishy-washy. I'm like, I'm a non-confrontational Libra to the core. <laughs> I love so it. So <laughs> I'm sorry that I just said maybe about something that should have been certainly. <laughs> I I mean, I don't know. Like, I... I I, I, I like I I'm hearing you talk about this and I feel like this is kind of almost the theme of the conversation like that mix between uncertainty and certainty and like hunger for belonging yet individuality and like uh, like all of those things are tying together and and, and I guess I'm wondering I, I'm wondering like uh, like kind of the topic of self-doubt has come up a lot and I feel like that's something we also see in your music a whole lot um, and I mean, you're really open about your wrestlings with anxiety and depression and self-doubt. And I'm curious whether you would tie together like some of these thoughts of like growing up in a context of where this was kind of drilled into us and how that manifests itself in your music and in other relationships and in anxiety, depression. Like, do you draw connections between those things or... Do you view them separately? I'm curious if you can maybe just talk about it oh, a little bit. No, absolutely. Like I, I was recently on tour, and the artist that was direct support for the whole tour, um, she and I were talking about. Like she grew up in a non-religious household. She actually had uh, four moms. Like she had uh, two mothers. And then they separated and, and are now with new partners. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, that's fascinating. Because I, like, thought my um, queer aunts were roommates until I was straight up, like, 15 years old. Yes. Because, <laughs> like, you know that yep. whole parental lie. Yep. Uh, <laughs> dude. <laughs> but, um, so, like, she had a, a much different upbringing. But we had similar self-doubt issues of like never knowing if you're doing the right thing or what's morally good or if people are fundamentally bad or if they're they're fundamentally bad and they sometimes do good things or if they're fundamentally good and sometimes do bad things that seems to be like the age-old question period um and I was so it made me question a lot of things because I think I have traced back my uh, continual ethical anxiety that I, I just feel like, um, you know, living a 
an Albert Camus novel at the grocery store when I'm trying to decide if I should buy these non-sustainable water bottles. <laughs> and I just like having a crisis at the Kroger. And I always trace that back to like an intense sense of right and wrong ingrained in me from a religious upbringing. But then when I spoke to someone who had no religious upbringing and still grappled with those things, I thought, well, maybe it is just that we have like fertile emotional soil for those kinds of anxieties that then mutate depending on what kind of environment we're placed in. Um, But honestly, I would still probably attribute a lot of my like, not my anxiety, but how like the forms my anxiety takes, right? Like the positions that the whack-a-mole of panic appears in, I think has a lot to do with like the areas of focus that religion really hones in on. Like, um, I guess like your behavior in the world, how you treat other human beings. Um, so I think, I think a lot about those things, but then I also think a lot about like, is it enough or like what, what is forgivable? What's, well, I guess forgivable is a loaded word. So like what's permissible, what's non-permissible? Um, what, like, how do I act in every situation? I try to like filter that through all these webs of what will incur, like what will be the most loving response. Um, and so sometimes like if we're thinking about, um, if we're thinking about in like a, a social activism context, which, you know, to me, religion, politics, social activism, like all just kind of interwoven. Uh, so if we're thinking about how I view myself in that sphere, there's a lot of like me wanting to be very vocal about my own beliefs and about my own actions, but then also wanting to be humble enough to allow other people to take up space and not insist upon my own like hubris of intelligence or certainty um and have like this solomon complex uh, about like having it all figured out but then i wonder if that's like you know the old remaining silent in times of oppression and thus choosing the side of the oppressor so i don't know that's i think they all are interrelated and they, they come out of my music like there's songs on the last record. There's one song in particular that is just straight up about feeling like the things that you do to be good or that are like a communication or a or an attempt to like summon and embody the divine are like when those things ultimately are not enough to quell the anxiety of am I a good person, then you have to reevaluate where those anxieties are coming from. Like they're at that point, I don't think it's any longer a conviction based in like God's actual opinion of you. That's like a human problem. Um, I don't know. I think I, I, I got a little bit sidetracked, but um, so I'm sorry about that. But yeah, no, they're all interrelated. I guess. Yeah. What about you? Like, do you, I guess that's sort of a self-answering question. It'd be like, how much do you think your religious <laughs> upbringing really impacted your psyche? Like, right. all 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's one of those things that I'm like, I mean, I certainly don't want to equate like religious upbringing with like anxiety and depression because like mm-hmm. anxiety and depression is so much more and different and than that. And like, it can certainly contribute. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. But I don't think, I don't think maybe it's a question of causality, right. but it's a question of like, I don't think a religious upbringing causes anxiety and depression, but I think that it gives us this added, like, I'll say mutation again, because, like, it it mutates the problem and adds new facets to it. Because I imagine, sometimes I like to just role play as a secular person and think, like, what would a secular person do in this situation? Like, or like maybe secular person is not the right like word, (laughs) but like, I just wonder like, what if a person, what if I didn't think about anything to do with my like religious moral compass in this decision? What would I do? Um, And I honestly don't think it would be that much different because I, I'm not out here thinking that there's like an ethical superiority to having been raised with a very stringent code of ethics that are based in like what we're told is biblical guidelines and what honestly has to do more uh, equally with like traditionalist cultural guidelines. Um, But I think of like, if I am trying to be a moral person and I believe that I, I do something and I believe I fail, I've just failed me in a very like limited sphere of the people who it affects and my like earthly zone and not that like if I do something trying to be the best person I can be and I fail then I have like before a divine audience of like extreme import failed to do the best I can as a human like that multiplies the weight of every decision by like an insane amount like I don't know if you ever grew up in that household that was like and my household was not like this but certainly there are Sunday school like my my mother and father weren't like this but then they're like Sunday school teachers and just teachers and just other authority figures in your life who will give you seemingly innocuous pieces of information like God's always watching like a scarier Santa who's like (laughs) sitting there like counting all your demerits and as much as you can logically unravel that in adulthood I think you never get away from being like I'm not just I'm not just disappointing or harming or or just like not living up to the standard of my fellow man uh I am making it's like a divine crime yeah I'm, yeah, I'm like disappointing the divine creator of all things and like no pressure. It, like, <laughs> like God just saw you double park. God just saw you park in the handicapped spot. And God knows you're not handicapped. Like, you know what I mean? Yep. Like, it's yep. insane. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that does kind of like amplify the intensity of like how we feel we're acting in the world. And especially for the queer community, like, I have had conversations with um, straight, um, like, cis, hetero friends, um, and they are working to unravel enough 
shame about their bodies and themselves and the feelings that they felt during puberty and their sexuality. Um, and they, wow, I was going to say, and they're just straight people. Mm. like just, <laughs> just straight people. <laughs> straight people, just the straights. Um, like, snooze. I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, like, I, I, but I mean that. Like, mm. they're they are working to unravel a lot of trauma around their sexuality and their sexual preference is not considered an aberration. So then like imagine to be a queer person, like not only are these feelings wrong, but they're not even like legitimized in any sort of future sphere. So I have to like push everything about my own self identity down and try to find it more in like self-denial um, and man it just seems like extremism and like the weaponization of the bible for like the preservation of uh, a certain traditionalist culture is what really leads to like the decontextualization of things that i think are ultimately good as they are described as tenets in like in the actual language of the gospel like um because i hear things cited all the time and i did as a child and i had to learn the balance of this things like um like to lose everything about myself is gain for the kingdom of god or like uh i must decrease so that god may increase like all of these things are about me the physical uh tangible individual becoming less and making space for God. And I think that just like we've talked about, like humility, selflessness, like patience, sacrificing your own comfort for others. Those are beautiful, admirable qualities, but I think they get taken so far into a reluctance to own our individuality. Um, and like for queer people, certainly, because like you think that it's an ultimatum then. Like, either I choose to hold on to my individuality or I give it up, like, as a cross that I'll bear as a sacrifice, you know? And that's really, like, really toxic. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Like, I, like uh, something from one of my professors was popped into my head talking about both theologically but and psychically. Like, in order to give up a sense of self or to like self-sacrifice or that kind of stuff you have to have a sense of self to begin with you have to have a self Ooh. to begin with and so mm. often we don't focus so often we miss that development of self and just give it all up and we don't even know who we are and mm -hmm. i'm like yeah, yeah. like <laughs> yeah it's it's so true yeah. yeah or i mean like i think of that too in like if if we are supposed to be eternally like living in a, I guess the, the terminology would be like in a kingdom minded way, then we forsake our concern with the current physical realm. Um, and I think all the time, like I was in a really fascinating uh, like history course once where we talked about how like in the whole like feudal system, the use of theology that uh, focused on the afterlife so much 
was like a power tool to make people more willing to endure present suffering and not question oppression. Um, when really, if you go back and you historically uh, like analyze the Bible and even the Old Testament, there's like a lot of the people of God interacting with oppressive power structures and like desiring comfort within those like on earth, um, which is a totally legitimate thing. You know what I mean? Um, and I think we do this thing where we shame people for saying like, for, for having that identity, as you said, like for saying like, well, I am queer and I would like to be accepted within my faith community. And then to have that desire is almost rejected as like, so you want something to make yourself comfortable instead of giving up something about yourself for like the church or for like as a sacrifice to God or as your uh, cross that you have to take up. But I mean, that's used in like so many other ways. Like I think anger is something I'm just now within the last two years becoming comfortable with like I used to think that like conflict and anger always were like the smoke signaling the fire of like a not okay thought you know like if I were really being godly and gracious and forgiving then I wouldn't be angry at anyone but then the more and more global atrocities happen the more I think maybe there's like such a thing as justifiable anger um so that's hard it is hard and Oh gosh, yeah. Like I like I feel like I feel like we could keep talking about this for forever. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And um and yeah, I'm very aware of the time too. And so oh, yeah. um I, for as much as I don't want to cut this conversation off, um maybe to close, um to jump out of kind of the heaviness of this conversation. I I I'd, I'd reached out to to um people who watch my Instagram story and was like, what would you want to ask Julian? And so um, Marco in South Africa, um, shout out to Marco, uh, is wondering what is on your personal playlist um, and what should we be listening to right now? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, Okay. Wow. Uh, On my personal playlist, I've been listening to a lot of Kevin Abstract and that new record, American Boyfriend, I think it's called American Boyfriend. Yeah, American Boyfriend. And then a band called The Internet. I think the record is called Ego Death. And the SZA record, I know it's like been out a couple months, but I'm still obsessed with it. And uh, dang, what else am I listening to? Lucy Dacus. She just put out a record. And Tancred. That band is about to put out a record, and we just got off tour. That's the tour I was talking about. Oh, cool. We just got off tour with an artist called Tancred. Um, yeah. Nice. So just a lot of, yeah, I've been trying to listen to more, like, um, stuff, like, outside of my punk and hardcore zone. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I feel like I kind of limit myself. Um, but, yeah. I love it. I'm sitting here, like, writing down all these names as if this isn't recorded and I can just return to it. I'm like, oh, get it done. But, like, I'm like, oh, I can, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Julian, thank you so much. Yeah. This has been such a pleasure. 
Of course. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks for letting me ramble about like the, you know, the seesaw of ethics for a little while. Just just like a little window into my my daily thing. (laughs) Be sure to pick up a copy of Julian's new album, Turn Out the Lights, wherever you buy music. Uh, It's also available on all streaming services as well. But, you know, buy music, support artists. You can find Julian across the internet at Julian R. Baker. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from Natalie England, Tim Schrader, Christian Hayes, and other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Queerology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to help support Quirology is by leaving a rating or a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye!